we were like, what are we going to do with no budget? How can we do this? We got to get really scrappy. We don't have any money to spend. We have to be break even or profitable every month we can. Can you remember the first time you made your online sale or the first time that a retailer agreed to carry your product? So exciting. But what if you can't meet demand of your online customer base? Or all of a sudden your design process is slowed and shipments are delayed? That's when the real headaches come in. But when your mission and your product is something you truly believe in and think it can leave a lasting impact, you take all the good with the bad and keep pushing forward. For Stojo, a company that produces collapsible, leak-proof cups and containers, there have been wins and losses of every kind. And CEO, Jurian Swartz, has been riding the waves as his company tries to get a piece of this $22 billion industry. On this episode of Up Next in Commerce, Jurian takes us through what it has been like to design, launch, and distribute Stojo's game-changing products. Plus, he guides us through how difficult it is to scale and market a business, and what it takes to make hard choices like laying off and rebuilding a staff. Enjoy this episode. Before we get into the episode, I would love it if you could hit subscribe and give the show a rating and review. I really want to know what you think and hear how we're doing. All right, on to the interview. Really quick, I want to say thank you, thank you to our awesome sponsor, Salesforce Commerce Cloud. And I'm going to allow them to give you the inside scoop into some of the findings from their most recent State of Commerce report. Hi, this is John from Salesforce. Did you know that companies of all sizes and industries power their digital customer journeys with Commerce Cloud? Salesforce Commerce Cloud delivers B2B and B2C commerce, as well as order management around the globe. And with Commerce Cloud, you can engage with your customers anywhere and personalize interactions everywhere. Scale and innovate with ease and drive some serious growth for your business. And speaking of innovation, we recently surveyed nearly 1,400 commerce leaders and analyzed the consumer shopping and business buying behavior of more than 1 billion customers worldwide. And we uncovered emerging trends that will influence how companies can be successful and stay ahead in this ever-evolving landscape. To check out the trends we discovered, go to sfdc.co slash commerceinsights. That's sfdc.co slash commerceinsights, one word. and welcome back to Up Next in Commerce. I'm your host, Stephanie Postles, CEO at Mission.org. Today, I'm chatting with Jurian Swartz, the co-founder and CEO of Sojo. Jurian, welcome. Hey, thanks for having me. I'm excited to have you on. So I was looking through Stojo a bit and your background. And what was very interesting to me, you can tell me if this is wrong, but I saw a quote where it's like, you, got, you and your co-founders were reading for our work week. And that's like how this came about, which to me was kind of wild because everyone's read for our, our work week, but I've never actually heard of someone creating a company based off that model. So I wanted to hear a bit about yeah. like what was going on back then. Tell me the whole story. Yeah, it's kind of wild. So I was at Credit Suisse um, and had a colleague. He was actually my manager. We got into this uh, habit of going for runs every day uh, during our lunch hour. And we mm-hmm. kind of had this like two guy reading book club going. And so one of the books that we eventually got to was Tim Ferriss's four hour work week. And mm-hmm. so, you know, if, if you've read it, uh, you could either create something because you're a creative, which um, I, I'll today I'll call myself a creative, but at the time I was like, I'm not a creative. I can't sing. I can't write. I can't. And, and then, so they were like, but you could also make something preferably in China, I think was, was the guidance. And I said, well, I speak Chinese. Um, I, I kind of, I've always had a thing for product and, and design, just personal interests. And um, 
why don't we see if we can come up with with one of those? And so we started to brainstorm and, you know, a few weeks after having read the book or even maybe a month, Alex comes in and he goes, I got the perfect idea. How about a collapsible coffee cup that goes in your pocket so it's easy to take with you on your commute and and travel? And, you know, I was like, that's not a great idea. Um, I didn't really like it. It I was just kind of like, nah, whatever. I think another couple of weeks passed by. I was, I was actually in the shower where I have a lot of aha moments. And what's funny is the more I talk to other founders and people, um, a lot of people have a place where they have their aha moments. And for me, mm -hmm. it's uh, driving on the interstate long haul between homes or whatever, or in the shower. I had a vision of my grandmother's daycare kind of setup where she used to have the, the dishwashing rack and she'd always have all the baby bottles lined up, taken apart. And if, if you're familiar with those, um, they have a, a plastic reservoir, a plastic collar and a silicone nipple, and it creates like a leak proof type of seal with the mm -hmm. screw on. And I realized that if I took a collapsible, you know, dog bowl or sea to summit type cup and put a, a lid on it like that, we actually could create this leak proof coffee lid that, that would actually, you know, help make this thing, you know, work. And when I, when I had that discovery, did some sketches and figured out that, Hey, we we're onto something here. And that's, mm -hmm. that's how it all started. That was 2011. So let's get back to your aha moment in the shower. You're like, I know how to create a cup, a collapsible cup that won't leak. What did the process look like after that? Yeah. So, um, just, you know, again, dating at 2011, 12 rapid prototyping was just becoming a thing. They had things like the first 3d printers, et cetera. And so, um, when you're making a, a, a durable good, you need, you have the industrial design thing. You have the CAD files that have to get developed. Mm -hmm. And when we went and priced that out, we were getting, we were getting kind of like quotes of $30,000 to kind of get to a prototype and maybe one or two iterations way beyond the budget of what our significant others were going to allow us to spend. Uh, my co-founder, uh, Alex Abrams was the guy that I worked with at Credit Suisse. When we got that price tag, we knew there was no chance that our wives were going to sign off on that. So mm -hmm. we were just kind of like, okay, this is done. A month later, we're, uh, Alex is at a Halloween party with his kids and he runs into Ben Mellinger, who he was a uh, fraternity brother at UPenn with. And Ben had been a consultant and quit that job to work on a water bottle, a concept he had for a water bottle. And so he self-taught himself how to do CAD drawings. And we said, Ben, how's that water bottle going? He's like, ah, you know, I don't, I don't really know how to get it launched, et cetera. Well, we have a project for you if you're interested. And he said, sure. And so we made him a, you know, an even partner and mm -hmm. he did the CAD for free. And then we started prototyping and that's how we kind of took it to the next level. So for anybody who wants to do a product design thing, if you don't have the money for a designer, an industrial engineer, and you could expect to spend anywhere from twenty dollars to $50,000 just to get that mm -hmm. design work and prototyping done, find a co-founder who can industrial design and bring them in. It's the best way to do it because uh, there's going to be countless iterations and you want somebody who's really vested in the product to make sure that what you come up with is really exceptional and it's not just somebody who's doing it as a consulting gig and just wants to check it off their, mm -hmm. you know, their list and move on to the next project. Yeah. I was going to ask that about how do you view, I mean, it seems like now, especially maybe back in 2011, it was definitely probably newer, but now it seems like yeah. everyone is kind of doing that launching quick, you know, getting prototypes quickly. 
Do you feel like it's in a different place now where you can maybe just go on an Upwork and, you know, hire someone to create like 20 different designs for you? And like, do you think the world is different now where you might not actually need to find a co-founder? Yeah, I definitely think that. I mean, I think if, um, you know, the power of Upwork and 99 designs, Mm -hmm. things like that is that it's open to folks who are living in areas of the world that are, you know, much cheaper to live in. Mm -hmm. And so you can actually get incredibly good work out of Eastern Europe, out of, out of parts of Southeast Asia, Asia. Um, I've, I've definitely gotten lots of help there. You know, it comes down to your, your aesthetic and your attention to detail and your ability to curate and manage that process. But for anybody starting out, I I'd say, go for it. What do you got to lose other than some time and money? And usually you get really good learnings from that stuff. So Mm -hmm. I think that's totally a viable place to go. Um, The other one is if you're a college age or recent graduate and you had an engineering school in your school, um, you might have people that you can find that way as well who'd who'd like to do it just for portfolio building or, or, or just maybe you want to start a company together. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Love that. So what was your first sale like? Do you remember getting that first sale? So we had kind of two first sales, if you will, right? So we're, a, we're an omni-channel business. So we have our, our website and we do Amazon. Um, and then we sell to brick and mortar retailers, right? Mm-hmm. So the first sale was when we launched our Kickstarter in June of 2014. But when we got that first backer and then the, the euphoria around that, um, having you know created a product, done a video, put together a campaign, and then pressed go was mm-hmm. it was really really incredible. And then what was kind of the fun thing about that was we went from you know zero dollars and passed our goal of ten thousand prior to midnight that same day. Um, so that was really great. And ultimately, we did like I think it was one hundred and twenty eight thousand dollars on Kickstarter. Mm-hmm. So twelve, thirteen times what we'd set out to raise, which was we needed the 10k to kind of cover the tooling so it that that was that was really exciting and then when we when we actually went commercial so i left my job at credit suisse in the summer of 2015 the coolest thing was when the moment design store buyer came and and kind of found us somehow probably through kickstarter mm-hmm. and and asked for samples and and then you know they they actually bought our cup and so we were being sold in the moment design store as kind of like our first retail relationship yeah. so that was that was really special as somebody who cares about art and design. Yeah, uh, that's that's awesome. So then after you were there, is that how other stores, I think like anthrop- you're in anthropology, I think like Whole Foods, like is that how they found you by just having that first, you know, retail customer or did you get those partnerships in other ways? I mean, that was a that was a slog. So, you know, 2015 until May of 2018, I was a one man band. So my Got my it. co-founders kept their day jobs. Mm-hmm. You know, we're, we're involved in, in various ways, but for, for all intents and purposes, I was the one that I was all in. Yeah. Um, and so I had to kind of learn and teach myself every aspect of the business. Mm-hmm. Um, frankly, I wasn't very good at the sales part of it. And um, we, we got a little stop start with Bed Bath, but our packaging wasn't quite right. We had supply chain issues um, just because of cash flow, and, you know, we didn't have the right merchandising. So it took um, bringing on a professional consultant who's actually still with us today uh, is great, who really knew the retail category and specifically hydration and, and um, coffee tumblers. It's a pretty big category in the mm-hmm. US. It's like a $22 billion um, segment. Wow. And, and if you think about it, every major retailer, gas station, dollar store, every, every store is selling hydration. Mm-hmm. So um, getting somebody who really knew how that worked and then just 
slogging it out for a bunch of years, going to the trade shows, um, getting press where you can, evolving our product. We started out with a 12 ounce cup, which was great for a New York City based commuter who goes to the corner, you know, deli and gets the 10 or 12 ounce cup of coffee. That's kind of the standard coffee in New York City. Mm -hmm. um, and and it, it also works out really good for the UK, Australia, countries where they drink smaller beverages. But guess what? In the US, most people drink 16 or 20 or 24 ounce coffees. Intense. So our cup actually wasn't really optimized mm -hmm. for scaling in the United States. So it took until 2018 till we introduced the, the what we call the biggie, the 16 ounce cup. And we added a straw because Southern part of the country actually drinks a lot of sweet tea, iced tea, iced coffee mm -hmm. uh, for most of the year. So moving away from a hot only small single serve cup of coffee to like something that's more kind of common to the US market, that really helped propel us. And then we also moved away from kind of, um, we started with some really primary colors and when I decided that I was going to start a brand and really grow Stojo into something, I really liked how Swell approached the market. And, yeah. and the way that I saw that play was um, they went hard after a very certain demographic of tastemaker, female, mm -hmm. millennial, Gen Z consumers. And I saw, I saw that we could probably do something like that. Um, and being in New York City, Brooklyn, um, I thought, you know, that's a pretty natural fit for me to to target that demographic and, and try to have my sustainable product be a um, almost like a fashion accessory. Yeah. And so when we did that, that's when I think we started to appeal to the Anthros, the Madewells, the Food 52s, the Whole Foods, um, et cetera. Yeah. How did you go about that? Because I look at companies like Swell and, you know, and a lot of the brands that are in anthropology and I'm like, how they got there is like so much through like marketing. I mean, you can walk in a, maybe a TJ Maxx and see tons mm -hmm. of swell style, you know, mugs yeah. and stuff like that. We're like, Oh, it looks pretty similar, but the way they did it, you know, like you said, attracted a certain kind of customer where it's like, I'm a fan. I'm not going to go to anyone yeah. else. Like, how did you start? Go like, how did you go about it to become like that as well? Like, what did you start implementing or what kind of marketing were you doing? Like, what did that look like? A lot of it was, I think just, just in intuitive in the sense that, since a very young age, I, I was always a consumer of brand. I liked, I liked brand. I, I would buy products based on their aesthetic, their, their utility, but also what, what the company's doing and saying. So, you know, like I was always one of my favorite brands of all time is United Colors of Benetton. And what appealed to me growing up in a really small Northeastern mill town, which was predominantly white. Um, almost like, you know, 99.9% .9 mm -hmm. was seeing this um, just kind of like calico quilt of different representations of human beings mm -hmm. um, and bright colors. And just like everybody in the photo shoots always looked like they were having a great time. And I was just like, yeah, man, that's, that's what I want in life. You know, I want to be around beautiful, different people, et cetera. I think that kind of always stuck with me. So when it came time for me to, you know, helm my own brand, what I wanted to, to do, and I, and, and I was also watching things like Tom's mm -hmm. Honest Company, you know, looking at uh, the Acumen Fund and, and, and their activities. And I came from Credit Suisse where I was, I was, you know, tangentially involved in a lot of kind of socially responsible investment activities for clients. Mm -hmm. And I said, you know what, I want to build a brand that, that does this. It's mission and purpose driven. On the one hand, I have my sustainability message. 
And then I have control over the storytelling and the imagery that I want to put out there. And what I want to do is appeal to people who want to support brands that they think are conducting themselves in society in the right way because it's the right thing to do and not because they have to do it or because it's the most expedient or the most profitable thing to do. Mm -hmm. And so I think that's kind of the stand that I took. And then the rest was more like, because we were bootstrapped, you know, I got a little bit more sophisticated in terms of the, the look and the feel of Stojo every year as I was able to hire people and, and bring on professionals. So when we were shooting our own photography um, and I was doing my own graphic layout in PowerPoint, it's a very different look than when you start actually hiring designers and paying for photo shoots and, mm-hmm. and then leveraging influencers, et cetera. So there was, an, there was an evolution. It seems like to build a brand like that, you have to rely pretty heavily on influencers. When I think about some of the brands that have really shot up recently, it does seem like that's like one of the most strategic angles to partner with someone who has your, you know, values and ideals and also the audience that you want to reach. Is that like a big, you know, part to your marketing playbook or just a small piece of it? Yeah, it's, it's, it's huge. Um, but, but interestingly, we've only really started, um, like intentionally and, and systematically, strategically, tactically, flexing into that mm-hmm. since uh, I'd say like August of last year. Um, so what happened was that the height of the pandemic, we, we had to let go of half our staff. We were about 20 people. Wow. We cut back to 10 to the most necessary and really, really hard to do. But when, when we did that, um, one of the things that kind of came from that was that we, we let go of our CMO who was, who was very high, you know, high salary, mm-hmm. uh, recruited from a big place. And, you know, the, the remit that he had was to help us scale this thing really quickly. We thought we were going to mm-hmm. scale a lot faster and we ultimately did. And when, when that all fell away, I just, um, you know, partnered up actually with my, my romantic partner, my life partner, Megan. Um, and she joined the team as a fractional mm-hmm. kind of CMO brand creative lead. And she started implementing all these things. Um, so we were like, what are we going to do with no budget? How can we do this? We got to get really scrappy and we have to, we don't have any money to spend. We have mm-hmm. to be break even or profitable every month we can. The, the influencer strategy is one of those things that if, if your, your brand has the right market acceptance and fit and, and you can relate to the right individuals, it's, it's a really, really interesting way to go. Mm-hmm. Um, so we've had we've had a bunch of success there, but we're we're really still only getting started. But there's definitely a ton of brands that that are kind of those like challenger brands that have done a lot of incredible work um, utilizing that. And we're 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 always watching what other people are doing and learning from it. And frankly, there's a lot of, of us are starting to talk behind the scenes, mm-hmm. um, management teams and making intros and talking to each other at roundtables and just sharing a lot of data. Yep. and information. And it's, it's making us, um, a, a lot more, um, scrappy, successful and, and, um, yeah, yeah. We're, we're starting to punch above our weight. I think a lot of DTC brands are doing that. Hey there, are you enjoying the show so far? Well, imagine your company's advertising placed right in this very spot during a future interview with another elite e-commerce mind. Imagine your messaging and logo directly connected to the industry's most prominent innovators and thought leaders distributed across every major podcast platform and social network. Yeah, well, it's time to stop imagining. Learn how you can partner with Upnext in Commerce and sponsor this very show. Reach out to me at stephanie at mission.org and let's have a conversation. It feels like the D2C world is much more um, eager to kind of share best practices and talk behind the scenes versus, I mean, 
we have, you know, podcasts covering basically all the C-suite. And I haven't really heard of, you know, a bunch of CMOs getting together and talking about best practices or like the first 90 days or CIOs. Like it seems like it's harder to do there than all these new D2C brands. We're like, yeah, let's all, you know, grow together. Like, how are you finding that community? And why do you think everyone's so eager to kind of like work together and share successes and failures? Yeah. Well, I think it's, I think it's structural and it's, it's generational. Mm -hmm. So um, if you've got a big incumbent brand, they are recruiting from a very well-known set of folks in the C-suite and they've been doing what they've been doing and it's working and they're sophisticated and they know their stuff and, you know, it it works for them um, given their size and scale. And when you have billions of dollars in revenue and you're like, my marketing budget is 10% of revenue. When you're a millennial or Gen Z run brand, um, a lot of us just kind of started doing it out of, hey, happenstance or necessity, right? Um, I, there's a lot of studies out there that um, if you're reading you know, the blogs and Medium and LinkedIn and stuff like that, that talk about even the New York Times, Wall Street Journal, talk about how millennials are way more willing to share mm-hmm. um, and talk about their personal finances um, they're negotiating tactics, how much they're making for salaries, how much they paid for their house, their car. I think there's a lot of us understand that being transparent. And we kind of chatted about it a little bit about my personal approach to it before the show. When you share information with other people, um, if you're doing it to brag or whatever, that's one thing. And I think the older generation always kind of thought that mm-hmm. sharing is is distasteful. You don't do it. It's yeah. not done. But I always ask, well, I don't know these things you know these things. I'm asking because I'm trying to gather information and make data-driven decisions. Yeah, um, yeah. And, and like D2C brands are and, and really good startups are all taking in data and tracking KPIs and they're making data-driven decisions. Mm-hmm. Um, not to say everything's data-driven, but there's a lot more of it. And in our industry, everything's very opaque. We don't have, I don't have the money to spend $10,000 for research on this one little thing or but I can certainly hop on a call, have a beer, share a coffee yep. with somebody and just kind of like you know, pick their brain. And I think um, a lot of us are starting to do that. And when you, when you lead with, with vulnerability, authenticity, which is, these are all values that we share and, and aspire to on our team. Um, and, and it's part of what Stoja is about. Um, and you say to somebody, hey, you know, I don't know everything. I'm here to, to share anything that you might need or want to ask, but today you have some information that I need, would you be willing to share it? And this is how I'm going to use it. And like 90% of the time, people are super thrilled to just be connecting on a real level and finding somebody that, oh my God, this person respects me. And like, they're a peer and like, I can help them and they can help me. It's, it's a beautiful thing. Mm -hmm. And it's really a metaphor for where we need to go as a society is, is like, instead of thinking about everything as zero sum games, just talking about how do we all get to like happiness and balance and, you know, Shangri-La or whatever. I'm, I'm, I'm overstating a little bit, but, but this idea of like, just because I'm winning doesn't mean you have to lose. Mm -hmm. Like we can all win and um, we're going to be around for a long time. And who knows, maybe one day we'll collaborate together on something, et cetera. So I I try to foster that as much as I can. And I, I really encourage people who are, who are on the fence about, you know, Hey, will this make me look weak or naive or, or whatever, you know, like, don't let that get in the way. Just like, think about what you have to gain, which is like information that you didn't have before Mm -hmm. you asked the question and took that chance. What do you have to lose? Somebody that you don't really know is going to, I don't know, talk about you or, yeah, exactly. Or say no. Yeah. Um, 
And uh, yeah, so I think training yourself to do that is, is part and parcel with becoming an entrepreneur and a leader. Um, and you can, the, the cool stuff about, you know, we shared our, our, our parenthood, the cool stuff about a lot of what happens in a startup environment and especially in me as a CEO, it's very similar to being a parent. Mm-hmm. You're, you're kind of the CEO of the household. And a lot of the stuff that you're strong at or weak at extends to both areas of your life. And you can actually get a lot of learnings and personal growth through kind of comparing and contrasting methodologies and approaches. Yeah, I think there's not much of a separation between those two, especially now. And the other day I did this, um, like a human design reading and test. Have you done this before? No, you no. Might, you might like it. Sounds awesome. Yeah, but it's very me much, more. I mean, it, it essentially, well, it tells you kind of like, this is the design of who you are and how you might operate. And, you know, who, I'll send it to you afterwards. I actually think you oh, would, please you would really dig yeah. it. Um, you yeah. need to have someone who like understands how to read it, but it was very applicable to like life and with kids and your partner. And then also thinking about like business. I mean, it was, it was saying certain things to me that I think I never had words of like, I felt a certain way, but then when she yeah. kind of went through and was like, Oh, you know, Stephanie, you are an unconscious alpha and you need to lead in this kind of way. But like, you mm. don't feel like you should be an alpha and like, I mean, it sounds a little woo-woo, but everything she was going no, through, it, I was kind of like- it doesn't sound woo-woo at all. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I, I was like digging it and it made me kind of rethink how I even thought about myself when it came to like work and life and just how it's all kind of one and how to approach it in a completely different way than, you know, five years ago where it's like, keep them separate. Don't try and mingle them together. That's when it gets messy. Yeah. Like it was great. Yeah. So I think that's where the world's headed. And certain people are trying to just adjust to that new way of thinking now. And like, is this even okay? Yes, yeah. it's okay. Yeah, I, I love that. And and please share. Yeah. Um, you know, when, when you say that, it's it's interesting. There's a lot of dogma that we were raised with as children that worked for, you know, the prior generation, or maybe it didn't. Um, and and we're, we're kind of like stress testing everything nowadays. Mm-hmm. And what's cool about the one good thing about all the, the information sharing and the, you know, putting everything out there is that you get to try and think about and, and discard things a lot faster yep. and you don't have to be like pretty about it. And so I think this rapid prototyping and hacks approach that started with startups um, is now spilling over into dieting or, or not dieting, just the way you eat, the way you mm-hmm. live, the way you sleep, the way you relate with your family and, and friends. And I think it's, it's going to bring about some really rapid shifts in, in human consciousness for the, for the better. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the whole world is kind of changing that way. I think that's kind of where any bubbling up around even like the U.S. right now is having issues because people are starting to, you know, they're meeting people 3000 miles away. They're finding their community in different ways. It's not all just based off like I live here anymore. And like, we're all the kind of the same, like within, you know, this one city. I mean, now people are thinking very different and finding their communities and having more of a voice by coming together more than we've ever had before. Like the whole world's changing so rapidly and people are trying to figure out like, how do I keep up with this? And do I stick with, you know, our roots of like how, you know, my parents, parents, parents have always done it this way or can I expand and, you know, do something different and live like a nomad and go where I want and find my people and, you know, have an impact on the world in a different way. So tell me a bit about like, was there an inflection point with the sales at your company where it's like, you know, you were a solo person for a while, your other co-founders were working full time, you were trying to build these partnerships and you're like, I need a consultant to kind of help me with retail. Like, when was there an inflection point where you're like, whoa, now we're like off to the races. I need to hire, you know, I need help. Like, and how many sales, if you're okay with sharing that, like, what was that level when you're like, now we're about to go fast and I need to 
hire quick and let me give everybody just a really high level overview on what happened from 2014 to today we've we raised capital on republic the crowdfunding site so a lot of that information is is public to, mm-hmm. to the extent it's appropriate and stuff but so we were bootstrapped i started with 125k from um, my family and a friend just a small little check to get me started plus 128k that we kind of did on Kickstarter. Mm-hmm. And before that, I think we each chipped in 10K. I think we had 20K and then we did the 128 capital raise. We did another failed, but 20K Indiegogo in 2016, raised 125 in capital and then did a small bridge round mm-hmm. before I raised my first round. So I'll, I'll just lay that out because I think it's, it's in, instructive and informative for people who don't come from the typical you know, equity raising background. Mm-hmm. So in 2015, I had a half year of commerce. That was internet and, and online. We did about 200K in sales. Mm-hmm. The next year we did 340,000. The next year we did 405,000 or something like that. I can't remember mm-hmm. the exact numbers. This is all me by myself. So 2015, 16, 17. In 2018, we came back from some, some trade shows and the, the houseware show happens in the spring in Chicago and in, in Frankfurt. And I, I actually got some international distributors and suddenly the orders started coming in from them because Asia and Europe were actually ahead of the curve over the US in terms of being buying into sustainable, reusable products. Yep. So we actually started getting distribution in foreign countries and the orders started coming in and there were too many. I just had my, my second child was like, not even a year. And so I wasn't getting sleep and I was just yeah. overworked, just, you know, dogging it. So I had to hire a person and I hired Jake, our COO. He's still with us today. And uh, he came from Melon and Getz. And uh, I, I brought him in. I interviewed him on a Friday and I had him at work on a Monday. And wow. I was like, like dude, you know, I you need know. your help. <laughs> yeah. I just was like, this, this is the guy. I want him in here. He started on Monday and he took over all these purchase orders that had come in. And we went from basically like, we thought we were going to do a million dollars in 2018. We ended up doing $2.7 million in revenue. Wow. And that was, that was like, that's when I was like, okay, I have a growth trajectory here that will look good enough to investors to try Mm -hmm. and raise a a small seed round. And so I did a a pitch night at WeWork um, where I was, I was using their offices Mm -hmm. And um, we ended up getting, I think, second place in this pitch so that they, they made a $75,000 investment. And with that, I was able to raise basically about 700K, and which brought my kind of lifetime capital raise to like a million bucks. Mm-hmm. And from there, we hired the team in 2019. So I got somebody focused on sales and marketing. I got uh, customer service. I got a designer. And, and then we, we ended up at the tail end of the year, bringing on after we did not get picked to go on Shark Tank because we were kind of holding for that mm-hmm. to see if we got an investment. So they passed on us. And so I decided, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to plow ahead. And then beginning of 2020, I'm going to raise another, another round. So we were able to get to 6.5 million in revenue, six, five or six, seven in revenue in 2019 and had a team of like 10. And then the plan was to raise kind of like our our mini A or our next mm-hmm. kind of seed B or whatever you call it. There's not, we didn't really fit in a good category, but we're going to try and raise two to $4 million at like the next level of valuation. And so I started hiring the team out. So that's how from January to April 1st, we hired and we were at 20 people and we'd extended the last two offers. 
right before the pandemic hit and they were set to start on April 1st. We, I think we gave them their offers like the week before the pandemic hit Mm -hmm. and they were going to start two weeks later. And so we're up to 20 people and we're on a trajectory where we thought we were going to double revenue again. Mm -hmm. And what in fact happened was we, we were unable to grow year over year in 2020. Mm -hmm. Um, So you know, we'd hired a team that was supposed to preside over a 14 or 15 million revenue company. And we were, we were going to be a $6 million revenue company again. And so we had to cut the staff. It was really, really difficult. You know, I'd never done that before. And, and that's kind of, yeah, that's kind of where we're at now. We're at like the the 10 people kind of range Mm -hmm. and we're starting to hire again. And, you know, we're, we're pretty confident that we're going to have, you know, a doubling of, of revenue again this year. It's, it's, it's looking like a really strong year. We have some amazing, you know, launches coming up, et cetera. So we're starting to build, but what was kind of a blessing in disguise was that when we cut back the staff last year, we realized that what we really needed to be much more scrappy mm-hmm. um, was a different kind of a team than I had envisioned because you know, I'd never scaled a, you know, a a year ago I was one person, right? So I'd never scaled before, never managed that many people, all all these things. And so today where we are today is we, we, we know much more what we need and we have agencies to fill the gaps where we don't have justification for a full-time head. Mm -hmm. And, and now our, our, um, kind of like our, our forward-looking hiring plan is much more based on profitability you know, certain KPIs that we have, and then, and then just very real needs that we've already established because we have agencies and we're paying them X. And we know when that expenditure gets to this, then we can justify a full-time head. Mm-hmm. So there's a, l- a lot of great learnings from that yeah. going through that, even though it wasn't easy. Yeah. And yeah. sometimes I think those um, forced adjustments are, you know, end up being the best learning lesson. I mean, we had to go through the same thing at my company had to lay off half the team, not due to COVID. It was back in 2019. And at the time, it felt like the worst thing that could have ever happened, crying on the phone. Yep. You know, most of these employees were my friends. And yep. but now looking back and being like so many good lessons in that, like even yep. rethinking how to hire, like you said, like, do you actually need a full-time employee? Like, how do you justify an FTE versus an agency versus, you know, having a one-off contractor? And yeah, it ends up being... A hard lesson, but long term, yeah. it seems like sometimes companies that go through those blips are able to come out on the other side stronger than before. Very, very much agreed. And and actually, I'll call something out um, again. I think for the benefit of any listeners who are those entrepreneurial minded startup type people shooting for the sky, because I'm one of them, and that's why I'm sitting where I sit. Mm-hmm. But if if you talk to investors, a lot of times investors are not those people. They're actually the the pragmatists and the realists, and mm-hmm. they've literally seen thousands of businesses like yours do either one of two things. And they're usually much more um, disciplined and pragmatic. And I think a lot of times COOs, CFOs, those type of people also tend to have those personalities. What ends up happening is as an entrepreneur who's like, I just need to make sure that we don't stall and Mm -hmm. we got to get it done. And I have to make a decision now so I can go on and do the other 50 things on my plate. A lot of times there's a lot of inefficiency in that decision-making process. And it's just guessing. What has to happen over time is a company needs to be run less on the seat of the pants and less on intuition and much more on discipline and and just, you know, time-tested tactics of sound business principles. And and that's that's kind of what at a very high level happened to you in 2019 and what happened to me. And as a founder going through that injects you with a sense of realism and it, it matures you and it gives you wisdom, I think, that prior to that 
because everything was on the up. You, you didn't really have that. You didn't have time for naysayers. You were defying all odds. And yep. now it's like, no, it's not just about my vision and me anymore. It's, it's actually a company and I have a responsibility to all these people. And, you know, accounting principles are going to define whether or not I'm still in business a year from now. And I have to listen to those. Yep. I think that's the shift that can happen. And it's really powerful when you go through that lesson, your mm-hmm. company doesn't implode. You come out through the other yeah. side of it. Those are learnings you're never going to un- unlearn, you know? Yeah. yeah. I also think like the emotions kind of leave the scene where it's like, yeah, during the time you're just like, ah, horrible crying, like, you know, the worst. But then yep. now when thinking about it now, like how I would even operate, it's like you just view it as such like a, it is a, a cut and dry thing. Like you're either, yes. you know, you've got good margins or you don't, you're profitable or you yep. don't. And like, here's your run yep. rate. And like, if it's not there, it's not there. Like there's no amount yep. of like, you know, friendships and feel good, anything that'll fix that. That actually ties back to that that point that I made. If, if you don't take care of yourself first, mm-hmm. you can't take care of others. So if the company isn't sound um, and it can't pay its bills and keep the lights on, you can't employ all these lovely people who, you know, of, of course, depend on you and trust in you and rely on you. But you have to make decisions as the leader mm-hmm. in ways that will keep the boat afloat or keep the, the, the greater good going. And sometimes you unfortunately have to make decisions that aren't popular, you don't like, you feel terrible about, okay. but it's, it's not about that. Thousand percent agree with all that. So I know we are running out of time, but I want to do the lightning yep. round with you because I think you're going to have some epic answers. So, Oh, geez. Uh-oh. No pressure. The so lightning rounds brought to you by our friends at Salesforce Commerce Cloud. This is where I ask a question and you have a minute or less to answer. Are you ready? Okay. All right. First I one. I think so. I'm secretly curious about what? What the profitability metrics are of like the top 20 DTC brands. The real, the real deal on the numbers. That's a good one. Something wise my elders taught me was? To always make eye contact and listen to what the person's saying and give it a moment before you respond. Ah, that's a good one. You're very good at that. You've made eye contact the whole time. So good job. <laughs> What's up next on your reading list or on your podcast list? Like, what are you diving into these days? So Jesse Pooge did a podcast um, invest with the best, I think it is, Mm -hmm. um, where he was talking about uh, his approach to performance marketing. And I've listened to it twice and I want to hear it again because it's so, it's so thick. Um, That's one. Then there's this other podcast that I can share. I'm terrible with names and remembering things like that, but um, it it was two of the original folks, the early hires at Amazon. And they talked about the Amazon memo and narrative mm-hmm. and the PR FAQ approach. And we're actually employing that at, at Stojo right now. Again, very incredible paradigm shift in a way of, of managing and, and sharing and pre- presenting information and coming to decisions. So mm-hmm. two things that I would, I'd highly recommend to people. Cool. We'll have to look that one up and drop it in our show notes. What do you do when you want to feel more joy? Uh, I like, I like, a, I like a little bit of cannabis as a nightcap and um, I really like to run. Nice. All right. Yeah. And the last one, that's maybe a little bit different than cannabis, but same, same. What's <laughs> one thing that will have the biggest impact on e-commerce in the next year? Oh, that's funny. That could, <laughs> um, I, I think uh, the, the battle of Facebook, Apple, um, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm really interested to see what happens there, um, how we figure out how to how to continue with attribution and um, respect people's rights to privacy. 
Um, and I think my gut, if you think about the right thing is we should attribute a, a commercial value to everybody's data. And I, as an individual should have the right to monetize and share that data and people should pay for it. Mm-hmm. Um, because I, I'm, I'm okay with people having my data because I think it, it leads to better decision-making and, and better functionality of, of the whole machine. Mm-hmm. But I, I want to know who's got it and mm-hmm. how they're using it. Um, and, and I think there should be value for it for anybody. Yeah, I agree. All right, Jerry. Well, it's been such a fun interview. Thank you for coming on the show. Yeah. Where can people find out more about you and Stojo? Look me up on LinkedIn, check out Stojo's Instagram and, and our website, obviously. And um, yeah, and then um, give this, this podcast a listen. Do it. All right. Well, thanks so much for coming on. Thanks so much for having me, Stephanie. listeners. Thanks for tuning into this episode. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. If you haven't already, please subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. It helps spread the word and I would greatly appreciate it. See you next time. Up Next in Commerce is brought to you by Salesforce Commerce Cloud and created by the team at mission.org. Subscribe now at Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts.